Well, if you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, to the pulpit the Reverend Zach Cole to bring us the Word this morning. Thank you, other Zach. I guess you're the first one, though, right? Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, having me here this morning. It's lovely to see you all. I bring greetings from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm sure you are familiar with uh, some friends over there like uh, Mark Furtado and Mike Glodo. Um, I teach alongside them there at the seminary, and I'm very, very happy to fill in the pulpit uh, today. So thank you again uh, for having me. Let's open up to Mark chapter 5, um, uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 5, verse 25 uh, through verse 43. Hear now God's holy word beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under the hand of physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. 
Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a God who speaks. You have spoken through the prophets, you have spoken in your word, and you have spoken in a son, Jesus Christ, of whom we read here in Mark's gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see him, you would open our hearts to believe, and strengthen our hands to obey. For the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said a moment ago, uh, I work at the seminary, RTS in Orlando. I've been teaching there for a couple of years now, and before that I was teaching at a different seminary. So I've been teaching for a while now, and one of the things that I've learned about myself through teaching is that I really don't like to be interrupted. It's not a warning for you today. It's just a little confession about myself. I don't like to be interrupted. Most of my day, I've got the door shut to the office because I'm writing a lecture, or I am preparing a sermon, or I'm grading papers, or I am trying to get ready for the next thing I have to do, and all of a sudden, there comes a knock on the door with someone who's got a problem, <coughs> someone needs help, and someone needs my advice, or needs me to do something else, or I get a text message, or a phone call, or daddy, 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 I have something really important to show you right now, and I don't deal with interruptions very well. How do you deal with interruptions? I actually had an interruption this week. I'd already agreed to come this weekend to preach. I live in Orlando, like I said, and I had Saturday morning blocked off. I was ready. I was going to prepare for Sunday morning. I was going to think. I was going to read. I was going to write the sermon and get ready, and all of a sudden, I started hearing a weird noise coming from the front end of my car. And you know what that's like, that just sinking feeling that this is going to cost me a lot of time and a lot of money. And it was a wheel bearing that needed to be replaced, which I didn't think could wait until I drove out to Vero Beach. So I figured I'd fix that before I come out to Vero Beach. And fortunately, I have a friend who's very good with that kind of stuff and helped me get it all sorted before I came out here. But some of us this morning are dealing with interruptions in our lives that are a bit more serious than a squeaky wheel or a dangerous front end in your car. Some of us are dealing with interruptions in our lives that are quite serious. Interruptions to the plans we have for our lives. Interruptions to the vision that we have for what our life should be like. Interruptions that are financial, are health-related, relational strife. Difficulties arise in the blink of an eye, that you didn't see them coming, and they interrupt all your good plans. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's happening this week, this year. What's been going on in your life, I can't say. But I know that, statistically speaking, many of us in this room right now are experiencing an interruption to the good life. And we're dealing with things that we don't want to deal with. And what happens in this passage is really, really interesting. What happens in Mark chapter 5 is that we see Jesus deal with an interruption. And he teaches us how to view and understand the eruptions in our own lives. Because this guy Jairus, this leader of the synagogue, gets interrupted. Well, he's got something important going on. And Jesus seems to feel fine spending time with this woman with an issue of blood. But what we're going to see this morning... Is how Jesus teaches us to understand interruptions in our own life. He's going to teach us what to do, how to view interruptions to our perfect plans 
in our lives. And what we're going to see this morning is that interruptions, life's interruptions are God's ordained opportunities for us to learn about the love of God and to show it to other people. That's what life's interruptions really are. There are no random interruptions that were outside of God's sovereign plan. Really, interruptions are God-ordained opportunities to learn about his love and to show it to others. So let's consider first the interruption that we see in this passage. The big one is the interruption that Jairus experiences while he's got Jesus' attention. He's got the rabbi. He's got the teacher to agree to come with him to save his daughter's life. She's on the point of death. Come help me. And Jesus says, I'll come help you. But on the way, Jesus makes a stop. He makes a very important stop. And from Jairus' perspective, this must have been agonizing. Jesus stops, and he could have just bypassed this woman. He could have said, you've dealt with this for 12 years. What's a few more hours? I'll come back later and help you. I've got a hurry. I, I am in a hurry. I've got an emergency. This girl is about to die. Can you imagine Jairus, just the urgency, the antsy kind of anticipation that he has with Jesus stopping the crowd to spend time with this woman and talk to her about her problem? I remember the, the birth of our second daughter. We were living overseas at the time. We were living in Scotland in the city center of Edinburgh. And we didn't have a car because we lived in the city center. And so when labor came on, we called the taxi because that's what you have to do. You have to call the taxi and wait for the taxi to come. And the taxi man, we pile up into his cab and we start driving the speed limit the whole way to the hospital. And I remember looking in the rearview mirror at the driver's eyes just trying to non-verbally communicate that he should speed up as my wife is here in labor. And his eyes, I could read them, were communicating back to me, that woman better not have a baby in my car. <laughs> but I had this, ur this sense of urges to come on, go faster, put the pedal to the metal. My wife is about to have a baby. Come on, let's go. And Jairus is thinking, Jesus, come on, don't spend time with this woman while my daughter's at the point of death. And so I'm very glad that the cab driver didn't stop on the way to the hospital to help an elderly, elderly lady across the road or something like that. That'd be more than I could bear. Not to mention my wife, the one that's actually in labor. And so you can sympathize a little bit with Jairus this morning to think about the urgency and the frustration that he would be feeling at this unwanted interruption by an old woman that needs Jesus' help. And this is something that Mark does on a number of occasions in his gospel. He likes to start a story... And before he finishes that story, he starts another one. And then he'll go back and finish that first one after that. This happens quite a few times in Mark's gospel if you read it carefully. And whenever Mark does that, he does that because he wants to teach us a lesson by taking two stories and putting them together. He wants us to see something special with two stories smashed together. So we're going to look and see what can we learn from the interruption that Jairus experiences and that Jesus entertains... When we look at these two narratives stuck together, let's step back and consider the similarities between the two accounts. Well, we've got two women, a younger woman and an older woman. Both are unwell. Both are sick. 
Both are healed miraculously by Jesus. Both are called daughter. Did you notice that? Both are called daughter. In verse 23, Jairus refers to my little daughter. And then in verse 34, Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. And both of the women have something to do with the number 12. Did you catch that detail when you heard it read? The little girl is about 12 years old. And how long did the woman experience her suffering? 12 years. What is Mark trying to do here? He's trying to connect them in a specific way. But that's about where the similarities between these two women end. And the differences start to come to the surface. The, consider what's different here. So the woman is an adult. The girl is younger. The woman is alone by herself, although in a crowd. The girl has a family. The woman acts on her own initiative. She's thinking. She's going. She's touching the hem of his garment. The girl has others act for her, especially her father. The woman expresses faith by touching the hem of his garment. And the girl's father is told, do not fear, only <coughs> believe. And finally, the woman is healed publicly. The girl is healed privately. Now, it's that last detail that really makes me intrigued by the course of this narrative. Because Jesus heals the woman in a remarkably public way, in almost a weirdly public way, compared to the young girl who was healed in an intriguingly private way. This woman that with the issue of blood has a very private problem, a hemorrhage, an ongoing suffering that she's experienced. And she quietly, anonymously, approaches Jesus in the crowd and just touches his garment. And she's healed. Notice that she is healed before Jesus says anything. You notice that? She, immediately she felt in herself that she was healed of her affliction. But Jesus does not let her get away. Why? She could have slipped away quietly. She could have slipped away and just blended back into the crowd, and no one would have been the wiser. But Jesus doesn't let her get away. Jesus doesn't let her slip away anonymously, quietly. He stops and says, who touched me? And even the disciples are saying, what are you talking about? You're surrounded by a crowd pressing around you. What are you talking about? Who touched you? Why would he stop? And he's not going to resume his journey until someone fesses up. This reminds me of school, back when the teacher's angry. And the teacher says, we can sit here all day, and I will punish every single one of you until the guilty party fesses up. That's how my teachers were in elementary school. Maybe not yours, but Jesus kind of reminds me of that a little bit here. He's saying, we're not going any further until somebody fesses up. The culprit says, who... Touched me. Why does he embarrass this woman? Apparently embarrass her. Why does he draw attention to this trembling, fearful woman who suffered enough already? I mean, the way that Mark writes this narrative just builds within us so much pity. I mean, just, 
Just look back at how Mark describes this woman in verse 25 and 26. Before the woman does or says anything, he loads the story with a background that just breaks your heart. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under the hands of many physicians and had spent all she had. And it was no better, but grew worse. She has suffered and spent and spiraled down, down, down. And if she couldn't get any further down, she's down on her hands and knees begging Jesus for forgiveness. It was me. It was me. I'm sorry. So Mark simultaneously does two things. He loads on the pathos. He loads on the pity for us to feel such pity for this woman. But at the same time, he shows Jesus stopping everything and drawing every eye to her. What a strange thing to do. Why does he do what appears to us to be quite cruel? Well, I assure you it's not cruel. I assure you that Jesus has a very good reason for doing this. He's using this interruption as a God-ordained opportunity to teach about the love of God and to show it to other people. But before I show you how that is possible, how that's the case, let's consider the young girl. Because this is very strange in the fact that almost the opposite thing happens. He takes a public affair and makes it private. You notice that? He does the exact opposite thing. In this scenario, the young woman is surrounded by family, friends, mourners, making noise, making a commotion. And he says, go away. She's fine. Go away. Get out of here. And he goes in privately, quietly, with just her parents and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and says, hey, she's just asleep. She's just nothing to see here. Come again another day. She's fine. I'm just going to go wake her up downplays what he's about to do so that they're ready to not see a miracle. They're ready now for her simply to wake up. And then, if that wasn't enough, he strictly charges them to tell no one once he's done. Don't tell anyone what's happened here. We have quite a conundrum, don't we? We have Jesus taking a private affair and making it public, and then all of a sudden, within minutes, taking a very public affair and making it private. It's almost like Jesus has no rhyme or reason to what he's doing, but of course, he is not doing this randomly. He has a very good reason for what he's doing, and the reason is that he is taking life's interruptions and using them as God-ordained opportunities to teach us about the love of God and to show it to others. Well, how so? How, how does that make any sense? Well, if we understand some of the first century context here, that will really, really help us understand what I mean. Take the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. She has a very particular need. Her need isn't simply physical, is it? Her need isn't purely biological. It's not just health related. A woman in the first century in Judea, in Galilee, in a Jewish situation, who had an issue of blood would have been ritually and ceremonially unclean. And if it was continual, 
it would have been her perpetual state of uncleanness. Twelve years going. Cut off from the social, cultural, ceremonial life of her people. She would have been known a mile away as that woman that you can't eat bread with, let alone embrace without compromising your own ceremonial purity. She was unclean, and she could not participate in many of the most fundamental and central cultural, social, and religious events of her day. Jesus knows this. He knows not just her physical need, but she knows her communal needs as well. He knows that a private, quiet healing would only solve one of those problems. Just consider what would happen if he healed her privately, quietly, and he let her slip away without drawing any attention to her. Who would believe her? Who would trust? Who would actually believe that she's been healed? But Jesus draws attention to it. He doubles down on it. He says, your faith has made you well. Go and be healed. So that every eye sees and every ear witnesses that this woman truly and totally is not just healed, but she's purified. She's clean. And what Jesus does simultaneously heals her physical suffering and her social suffering as well. And in an instant, she is able to be welcomed back into community. That is a wonderfully amazing act of Jesus Christ. That he knows not just what she needs physically, but he knows what she needs socially. She knows, he knows that she has been cut off ostracized, rejected, arm's length at best. Can you imagine being at arm's length from everybody else for 12 years plus? And so when he draws attention to her and he singles her out and he does not let her get away, Jesus does exactly what she needs. What must have felt like the most embarrassing moment for her Life, the lowest, turned out to be more than she could ever have imagined. This interruption, this unexpected event while Jesus was busy doing something else, turned out to be a God-ordained moment for Jesus to teach her about the love of God. Not just the knowledge of God about her precise needs, but the love he has for her. So, what Mark lets us glimpse here is the fact that one day, Jesus Christ will not only heal us physically, he will not only redeem our bodies, but he will redeem our society. He will bring us together so that sin will not infect and break our relationships with God or with one another. At our congregation at St. Paul's in Orlando, uh, we have a number of families that have children with special needs. And we had a Sunday school hour uh, a couple weeks ago 
where we interviewed those families and we wanted to ask them, what's it like to be members of a church and come every Sunday and bring children that have special needs? What do we, are we doing right as a church and what do we do better as a church? And it was simultaneously so encouraging and so convicting and heartbreaking because it was so encouraging to know that we are the kind of congregation where they feel comfortable to bring children with needs that most children don't have, where they can actually experience genuine love and fellowship and uh, you know, sitting side by side with other believers. But it was also heartbreaking because they pointed out several things, several specific things that we were not doing well in, where we could really improve the way that we accommodate we can improve in the way we communicate, and we can improve in the way that we embrace and love those who are different from us. And so what I've started to learn is that when a family with, that has special needs comes to our church, they are not a distraction. They're not an interruption. They're not a burden. They are a God-ordained opportunity to show the love of God. God brings interruptions into our lives, dressed in many different ways. But they are not a burden. They are not an interruption in God's eyes. They are his sovereign way of teaching us about his love and giving us the opportunity to show it to others. I see a number of families here with kids. Your kids might feel like an interruption when you're working and you're trying to get a project done. That's how it feels to me. Daddy, I need something from you right now. But God has sovereignly brought them into your life to teach you something and so that you can show God's love to them. Your children are not a distraction or a burden or an interruption. God has chosen to use that in your life for these reasons. Now, the second healing, as we said, was different. Jesus takes a noisy public affair, and he makes it private and quiet. So why? Why the change in tactics? With the woman, he's taken this private thing and made it public, and now we've got the change in tactics with the young girl. And again, a little bit of knowledge about the first century would help us a lot. Do you know the significance of being 12 years old in the first century in the Middle East? You are on the age, you are right at the edge of the age of marriageability. You are right there. This sounds strange to us. I have a daughter who's 10 years old, and this sounds absolutely insane to me to think about marriageability in two years. But that is life in the day of the Bible and the culture that what we're reading about. This is normal. That 12 years old is when you can get betrothed. Maybe you won't be married, but you can at least be betrothed to somebody else, promised and engaged to be married. And she is right there, right on the edge of marriageability. So what does she, she does not need to be known around town as that girl who came back from the dead. That is the last thing she needs in a culture which, again, <laughs> views death as a source of defilement. 
once again, what this woman needs is not simply healing, not simply physical restoration, but she needs restoration to the community as well. She does not need to be that girl for the rest of her life. What self-respecting Jewish parents would allow their son to marry the girl that used to be dead? (laughs) Unmarried women. Unmarried women in the first century did not have many options for life, for making a living. So marriage is not simply about romance, although it was a bit about romance back in the day. It wasn't simply about falling in love, although there is a bit of that in ancient cultures. But it was just as much about well-being, security, stability, income, protection. And so what this woman is looking at and facing is a life potentially without (coughs) without well-being, without income, except for options that would not be desirable for anyone. But the way that Jesus heals this girl, the way that he makes it a quiet, private affair, and he makes sure the crowd isn't there, and the last thing that the crowd hears is she is asleep. The way that he does this heals her in a way that does not risk her future, in a way that allows her, at least potentially, to enjoy a life of security and life in community. Both these women are healed by Jesus in a way that shows he knows their specific needs. Jesus doesn't come with a band-aid for everybody. He knows their specific needs that are unique (coughs) to them. And that is a wonderful encouragement to us this morning. What does this passage teach us? Let's consider a few things this morning in our situation, what this passage teaches us. The first thing, most obviously, we can't get around this, Jesus Christ is the one and only source of life, forgiveness of sins, and purity. Jesus Christ is the only place that you can go. He's the only person ever to exist that can give you forgiveness of your sins, purity, and eternal life. You need Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is all about. Jesus is everywhere, doing everything, because he is at the center of the universe. Jesus Christ is God's chosen, righteous one, Messiah and King. And he's the king that lays down his life for his friends. And in laying down his life and being raised eternal on the day of Easter, he brings us salvation. And forgiveness of sins. And so if you don't know that today, I want you to learn it today. Fly to Jesus. Go to Jesus Christ as the one, as the source of forgiveness and purity. But secondly, more specifically, we can see that he knows us. He knows our specific needs. He knows in detail, more than anyone else could know. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have a spouse. How well do they really know you and what goes on in your mind, in your heart, day to day? Jesus knows. He knows exactly what's going on in your life, down to the details that you would be ashamed to share out loud. 
He knows. He knows. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord. Where can I go from your spirit? But it's not just that he knows. He loves you. He loves you. He is concerned. He is compassionate for those needs, for that suffering. He truly is compassionate. That's the ironic thing, that the one who knows you better than anyone else actually loves you. uh, Really loves you. To the point of laying down his life for you. Shedding his blood and standing in your place and dying on the cross. For you and for me. Not because he doesn't really know us that well, but because he knows us better than anyone ever will know us. You might be thinking that church is the kind of place where everyone shows up because they're pretty much the same. They all, they're all kind of the same. They're not really like me. I'll never really fit in. I'm, I'm different. No one will really ever kind of understand me and the, the, you know, you know, the distinctive things about the way I think and the way I view the world and my gifts and my talent. I just won't fit in. I'll always be kind of a a spare wheel. I'll never really fit into the life of the church. Well, let me just tell you, that's more of a mirage than anything. That's more of a mirage than anything. If you're here this morning, God has brought you here sovereignly, and you are not an interruption or a burden. You have unique gifts, unique problems, yes, maybe. But Jesus Christ knows all about them. And he has called you to himself because he loves you. And his grace is greater than your sin. And his love is far greater than your weaknesses. He would love to use you in this church. He would love to get you involved in this church, in the life of the body of Christ. We live in a time of tension. We live in a time where we don't yet experience the full physical healing that we might on the day of Christ's return. We now have uh, bodies that are wasting away, the Apostle Paul says. But one day, when Christ comes back in Philippians 3, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so we live in anticipation and in hope that the physical healing experienced by these women will be fully felt by us in that day. But on this side of the second coming, we do have the opportunity for the full and final forgiveness of sins offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One final comment. He knows your needs. He cares about your needs. As a church, we have the privilege and the responsibility to extend this love to others. God uses interruptions as opportunities to learn about his love and to show it to others. You have neighbors with needs, and they might be interrupting you. You have coworkers who have needs, and they might be interrupting you. And you have people sitting next to you right now who have needs, and they might be interrupting you. There are no random interruptions. There are no random interruptions outside of God's sovereign 
power. God is bringing people into your life because his plan is better than your plan. And you might have a plan for how your life is going to go and your career is going to develop. And tomorrow that might all change. Tomorrow that might change drastically. But there are no random interruptions. There are just opportunities for you to reach out in love with the love that you have already experienced in Christ Jesus. So let me encourage you this week, as you go into this week, have an attitude that says there will be no random interruptions. There might be interruptions, but they won't be random. There will only be God-ordained opportunities to learn about the love of God and to share it with others. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which convicts us and challenges us and lifts us up when we are down. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would encourage us by your word, that we might know the love of Christ Jesus which transcends all understanding and that we might be the kind of people who share the love which we have experienced in your name, we pray. Amen.